welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore-Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book, The Search for Captain Slocum by Walter Magnus Teller. We're on chapter six. This is the fifth part of the reading. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast, or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week, or of course, the Mariner YouTube channel, where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. Chapter 6. What was there for an old sailor to do? Captain Joshua and Hetty returned to East Boston in the summer of 1889. Hetty went to live with a sister. Jessie and Garfield went with her. Father did not come to that house, Garfield wrote. By that time, Victor and B. Amer was each on his own, B. Amer said his father spent much of his time in contacting his former business associates, seeking a lead to something acceptable, but nothing acceptable came along. Slocum, at rock bottom, turned to himself. He still had all his resourcefulness. For a man with no schooling to think of becoming a writer seems going pretty far afield, but for the merchantman of literary talent it was not too far. All the education he ever got went a newspaper account of the captain was on the water, but he is an encyclopedia now. When he found he was important in no other way, then Captain Slocum turned author. The captain finished writing Voyage of the Leverdad while staying with his aunt, Naomi Slocum Gates, his father's sister, whose house at 69 Saratoga Street was the family meeting place. In 1890, he had his story printed at his own expense, the little book, now very rare, still has a genteel Victorian appearance, less than 5 by 7 inches in size, 175 pages of passable paper. It was decently clothed in dark green, as though determined on keeping up appearances while scarcely having the means to do so. Indeed, one wonders where the money to pay the printer came from. Not many copies could have been issued. Not many were called for. Few are the libraries which own, or ever owned, a copy. To the title page of the first book, the captain added, Description of a voyage down to the sea. It was, he explained, written with, A hand, alas, that has grasped the sextant more often than the plane or pen. This was hardly an apology, as he called it. It was more a proud boast, and well it might be, for Voyage of the Liberdad is a first-rate, true sea story, a moving evocation of the seafarer's life, told simply, directly, and sometimes humorously the kind of narrative of actual experience which a Melville, with a few additions, might have transformed into literary art. It is not unheard of that a man without formal education should write well. What is remarkable, however, in this instance, is that so much reading did not spoil the writing. Captain Slocum had a passion for books, yet his style was not imitative. Part of the explanation may be that no matter what he was doing, he never lost his identity. He never forgot who he was. If he did not bring literary finish to the work, he brought instead the savour of salt water and his own world view. He always spoke in a voice entirely his own, a Yankee skipper and trader, and was already accustomed to an exact and pungent use of words. In setting his course in the new element, he took no unnecessary chances. His professional instincts were sharp. What the whale ship was to Melville, his Yale College and his Harvard, the square-rigged merchantman had been to Slocum. But in spite of its excellence, the book went widely unread. In 
Among journals and magazines of the day, only the critic noticed it. In its issue of 5th July 1890, its young co-editor, Joseph B. Gilder, wrote an enthusiastic review. To him goes the credit for discovering the sailor writer. He understood perfectly that the captain's authentic qualities could not be questioned. The merits of the book are clearly attributable to the author, Gilder wrote. The thing has not been licked into shape for him. Joe Gilder turned out to be a great friend to the indomitable old salt, as he called the captain. His review eventually helped Slocum find a publisher. But at the time, it could not save the book and the author from financial failure. Slocum, down in East Boston, was clean worked out. It was only ten years since he had brought the Northern Lights from Hong Kong to New York. Gone now were such proud feats. Gone was the romance of sale. In ten years, Slocum had climbed from the top of the ladder to the bottom. When the book failed to sell, it was no longer a matter of finding something acceptable. The captain had to take anything he could get. One day, he later told a sympathetic newspaper man, when I was doing a bit of an odd job on a boat and a whole lot of coal and dirt mixed, Cape Horn berries, they call the stuff, came down all over my face and neck. I stood up. I thought of the difference between my state and when I was master of the Northern Light, and I quit the job. Garfield wrote that his father told him he was offered a berth as a captain by the White Star Line, but that he refused. I asked father why. He told me, I followed the sea in sailing ships since I was 14 years old. If I accepted this offer, I would have to get used to steamships, and I do not like steamships. Slocum went to work as a carpenter in the famous Mackay shipyards in Boston, but he did not stay long. They asked me if I belonged to any union, then they wanted to know what church I was a member of. It cost $50 to get into the union, and I hadn't the cash. It seemed to suffice that I belonged to God's great church, that knew no bounds of creed or sect. Times were hard. A financial panic was impending. Then, on a wintry day in 1892, in Boston, where Slocum, walking the waterfront sheds, was wondering whether to try once more for a command or try again at the shipyard, he met an old friend, a prosperous, retired whaleman. Captain Eben Pierce, pronounced locally as Purse, was his name. He was the inventor and pioneer manufacturer of the whale bomb lance and gun. When he died, ten years later, he was described as one of the last remaining relics of the old whaling days. The ex-whaleman said to the ex-merchantman, Come to Fairhaven and I'll give you a ship. But, he added, she wants some repairs. Slocum went at once. It was, as he later wrote, a time when many worthy captains addressed themselves to sailors' snug harbour. Captain Purse lived in Fairhaven on New Bedford Harbour, the two places are joined by a bridge across the Akushnet River. Fairhaven, very much the smaller of the two, had been one of the New England seaport towns that had dominated the whaling industry in its greatest period. Even before the 90s, its whaling fleet had been wiped out. Fishing interests, however, were still important, though town and township together comprised less than 3,000 persons. Except for the new buildings given by a native son grown rich on standard rather than the whale oil, Fairhaven had the quiet, brooding aspect of a New England town declining into a summer resort. When Slocum arrived there the very next day, he found that his whaling friend had something of a joke on him. 
The ship in question was an ancient oyster sloop called the Spray. She was said to have been 100 years old and for the past seven years had been lying out high and dry in a pasture. She was battered by time and rotted by disuse, but to Slocum's longing eyes she was beautiful. To him she appeared affectionately propped up, some distance from salt water. In short, the spray, like Slocum, was on the beach. A Yankee shipmaster does not wear his heart on his sleeve, and what the captain felt at this moment he never described, but the sight of the old boat whose sailing days, like his own, were finished, stirred him deeply, and there is a kind of pity which is also love. One can be sure that, as between Slocum and the spray, it was a matter of destiny. From the hour of their meeting, they were never really to be parted. The people of Fairhaven were puzzled by the captain's interest in the old wreck. The day I appeared, there was a buzz at the gossip exchange. At last, someone had come and was actually at work on the old spray. Breaking her up, I suppose. No, gonna rebuild her. Great was the amazement. Will it pay? was the question which, for a year or more, I answered by declaring that I would make it pay. If Slocum built for the joy of building, he could not say so to the whaling captains who stopped by to Gam. But once started on the work, he was in a good state of mind, probably happier than at any time since Virginia had died. The seasons come quickly. Hardly were the ribs of the sloop up before apple trees were in bloom. Then the daisies and cherries came soon after. It was a nice situation. On the one hand was the captain's love for the old sailing boat. On the other, the simple fact he had nothing better to do. By dint of hard work, steady application and some skill at shipbuilding, as he told a reporter, he managed to rebuild the entire craft. The fact is that all Slocum retained of the sloop was the model or original lines. As he rebuilt, he put in new timbers as fast as he removed the old. When he was in need of the right kind of lumber, he had easy recourse to the wooded areas nearby and to pasture oak in the pasture in which he had set up his improvised shipyard. He was an old hand at that sort of thing. Perhaps as he worked with plane or adze, he sometimes recalled how, long ago, he built the hull at far away Alongapo, or thought of the Liberdad, built only five years before, and how well he had sailed in that little craft. In the time that Slocum built his boat, he lived in Fairhaven with a practical joking but good-natured Captain Purse. Purse was a bachelor, in fact, and Slocum in a manner of speaking. There was nothing and no one to disturb them. B. Amar visited his father and inspected the new spray coming to life. Garfield wrote that he liked Captain Purse very much. Hetty, meanwhile, remained in East Boston, either with relatives or down the street from Aunt Naomi's, where she and the captain had rented on and off before he went to Fairhaven. It is likely she worked at her trade for her living. Slocum took 13 months to complete the spray. Cash outlay was $553.62. To obtain the money, a real sum in those days and circumstances, he worked on ships fitting out farther down the harbour. He had to live, too, but his living expenses were bound to be very small. His boyhood experience and the New England influence had taught him how to manage with little. If Slocum had the Puritan acquisitiveness, the sea had taken his worldly goods and left him the Puritan simplicity. He had no fear of poverty. He was rediscovering the joy of lean living in a world increasingly dependent on material objects. The day of launching finally came. 
the little craft of doubtful build and distressing plainness was pushed into the river without fanfare. But for Slocum, she sat on the water like a swan. She was 36 feet 9 inches overall, 14 feet 2 inches wide, and 4 feet and 2 inches deep in the hold. Her gross tonnage was just under 13 tons. A smart new Hampshire spruce was now fitted for a mast. Sails were bent, and the spray, with Captain Slocum and Captain Purse on board, went flying across Buzzard's Bay on her shakedown cruise. All went well, but friends along the shore still worried. Would she pay? Before the matter could be put to the test, Captain Joshua, very unexpectedly, was offered a position on a ship, his first real job in five years. Chapter 7 Home on the Spray While Slocum had been building quietly in Fairhaven, civil war had come to his old trading grounds, Brazil. The conflict, like all armed conflicts, brought disaster to some and opportunity to others. In this one, Slocum picked up a navigator's berth, a promise of wartime rates of pay for his trouble, and as it turned out, the subject for another book. Leaving the spray moored in Fairhaven, Slocum turned once more to Brazil. On the 6th of September 1893, Admiral Custodio de Mello, on board the warship Aquidaban, had taken command of the naval forces at Rio and become the head of the insurgent factions demanding the resignation of General Floriano Pesotto, the dictatorial president of the country. To meet the revolt, which had been brewing some time, Pesotto's agents abroad had been instructed to buy up whatever warships they could. In the United States, they bought the Destroyer, an iron gunboat, 130 feet long, designed and built by the famous John Erickson, who had died four years earlier and had left the novel craft untested. It was Erickson who had designed the Monitor, the first armoured turret ship which had fought the Merrimack. Later he had developed a destroyer system, that is a submarine torpedo and a means of discharging it, and embodied it in a boat of that name. But a long period of peace had prevented him from trying it out. Slocum was an admirer of the Swedish-born engineer and the vessel destroyer. He was perfectly confident of being able to pilot the Ericsson invention to Brazil, though her seaworthiness had been, from the first, a matter of dispute. While he could not get a command in the merchant service, for this kind of hazardous undertaking he found plenty of backing. Captain Slocum was highly recommended. The American Shipmasters Association vouched for him, as did Edwin Henry Salmon, surveyor to Lloyd's. The torpedo wonder was hastily patched up, and Slocum, as navigator in command, put to sea. The naval insurrection and civil war had had a long and complicated background, and it developed into a long and murderous struggle. Thousands of lives were lost, and in the words of the historian, social and economic unity thoroughly disrupted. There is no indication, however, that causes or outcome or any of the unsolved problems or individual tragedies were of any particular interest to Slocum, except as they affected shipping. In this respect, he was very much a part of his age. He shared the general outlook of a rising imperial nation. The captain's interest in lending a hand to the legal government of a people in whose country I had spent many happy days was strictly personal. He had old scores to settle. It had been the same de Mello on the same Aquidaban who in 1887 had prevented the Aquidneck from proceeding to Rio, a move, so Captain Slocum argued, which ultimately 
had led to the loss of his ship. Now, with a cargo of dynamite instead of hay, Slocum could cheerfully look forward to another encounter. However, Slocum and DeMello did not meet. The destroyer never saw action. After a voyage of fantastic difficulties, Slocum made Bahia in February 1894 and turned the vessel over to the Brazilian revolutionists. But the new crew was careless, disloyal, or simply had no stomach for fighting or for Yankee engines of war. When they scuttled the destroyer in the harbour, they also sank Slocum's prospects of pay. He did not get a dime of the $20,000 he was promised. As soon as he could, he found passage north. Returning from the war, broke, Slocum went straight to the one he had left behind. There, where she was moored, he sat down and wrote a footnote to history. Voyage of the destroyer from New York to Brazil. From the quiet cabin of my home on the spray to the reminiscence of a war. The reminiscence gives a Gilbertian account of a voyage as remarkable in its melodramatic way as that earlier one on the Liberdad. From Slocum's point of view, it had been an opera bouffe war. The revolt began in Rio. The date don't much matter. The funny war, as far as the Navy was concerned, finished of itself in March 1894. No historian can ever say more. They may tell of hot firing and hot fires, but it was by the heat of the sun and by that child of filth, yellow fever, that most lives were lost. In this way, some of the members of our own expedition were taken. Were it not indeed for these darker shades, I could now look back with unalloyed pleasure over the voyage of the destroyer, the voyage of past hardships now so pleasant to bear. Again, Slocum had his work printed at his own expense. The further he drifted from the position of command, the greater was his need to be heard and noticed. He now had the outer as well as the inner urge to write, he actually suffered privation in order to publish the book. According to Victor, 500 copies were printed. However, almost none have survived. Paper and paper binding were so poor that most copies must have fallen to pieces. The 37-page book is now rare indeed. The Library of Congress does not even have a copy, but probably because the captain could not afford the copyright fee. Slocum did not try to sell the book. He gave it away. Author's Note he gave one as a Christmas present, so he wrote in a letter to Eugene Hardy, to Professor Samuel Pierpoint Langley, inventor and author, and at that time secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. But the Smithsonian Library does not have it. The present writer knows of three copies, one in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts State Library, State House in Boston, one which was Victor Slocum's and now belongs to his niece, Catherine Woodruff, and his own, the first, with corrections and additions in Slocum's hand, was apparently given by him to the library on the 8th of August, 1894. The second was presented by the captain, 17th of October, 1896, at Manly, New South Wales, to M.S. Brown, the U.S. Consul at Sydney. The third also has corrections and additions written by Slocum. It is inscribed to Commodore John A. Stetson, comps of the author. But if all the copies had been lost, a version of the text would still exist. Voyage of the Destroyer was edited and published by McClure's magazine in March 1900, after the captain had become famous. It has not been reissued since. It reads like a romance, a newspaper notice said of Slocum's second book. It is as valuable from an historical as from an amusing standpoint. But Lieutenant Carlos A. Rivers of the British Marines 
a much decorated fellow officer on board the destroyer, whom Slocum had lampooned, did not think the book funny. Because of Slocum's remarks about him, the lieutenant challenged the captain to a duel. Slocum said to the newspaper man who acted as self-appointed second, It is better that I catch fish than fight him. Just say that I am a man with a big fist. Do anything to discourage a duel. Good day. The voyage of the destroyer was a digression from the mainstream of Slocum's life. It was a job undertaken in desperation, and desperate it proved to be. After facing danger and death, Slocum tried to shrug it off in a piece of humoristic writing, but he was disappointed at the loss of the promised pay. In the world's reckoning, however, it is fortunate that the captain did not get the money. Instead, he got on with the real purpose of his life. The outer problem now was to make the spray pay. Slocum's first idea was fishing. I had intended using her as a fishing boat, he told a reporter, and did do a bit of it after she was launched, but good lord, I couldn't seem to get any fish, and when I went lobstering, all I could get was short lobsters, and after that, I'd get in jail if I kept on, so I gave it up. Though in his younger years the captain had fished in the Pacific and in the Okhutsk Sea, he found in the summer of 1894 that he had not the cunning properly to bait a hook. While Slocum lived alone on the spray, the great idea must have been germinating. For that summer he was not only fishing, but sailing, getting the feel of the boat. In fact, he almost wrecked her before getting really started. Garfield wrote he was with the captain on board the spray, outbound from an inlet on the main coast. There was very little wind. Father was steering. As the spray almost passed a ledge on the leeward, the powerful undertow lifted her and dropped her on the ledge. The waves tried to finish the spray. Some help came quickly to our aid by land and sea. The father threw a coil of rope to some men on shore. He tied me under my armpits, held one end of the rope and told me to jump. The men pulled me to high ground. Other men in dories got the spray off and towed her to a place where father repaired her bottom. But at the same time, he hoped to make a dollar by writing. While waiting around uncertain of the next move, he got Robert Brothers, a well-known Boston publishing house, more on the literary than the commercial side, to take on his first book. He took them the plates of the Voyage of the Leverdad, which, of course, were his. He had paid for them four years earlier. Corrections were made and illustrations added. These cost $100, which sum was charged to Slocum's account. Robert's brothers printed a thousand copies at their own expense. The printing cost seven and a half cents a copy, the binding 14 cents. They put out a neat and pretty job with a choice of colour of binding, red, yellow or blue. Publication was in September of 1894. The price of the book was one dollar. Slocum's royalty was 10%. If the entire edition had been sold in the usual way, he would merely have recovered the costs of the corrections. However, by peddling the book himself, he did a little better than that. Well, if there was little money in it, there was satisfaction and prestige and through it Slocum made friends. Garfield wrote, Father had a party out sailing, men and women all from Robert Brothers. We anchored off two lighthouses off Boston Harbour. Some fished. One man put up 50 cents prize money for the person catching the first fish. I caught the first fish, but was not able to pull him in. A man standing next to me did it for me. The fish weighed 12 pounds, a codfish. Father made a fish chowder. Everybody said it was delicious. Some of the men brought bottles of liquid refreshment, which we tied on a line and lowered over the side to cool. 
everyone enjoyed the outing. Slocum was delighted with Robert Brothers' new addition. He was ready to take half of it. From Pemaquid Beach, Maine, where he was sailing the spray, 18th of September, 1894, he wrote, Messrs. Roberts Brothers. Dear Sirs, referring to the book Voyage of the Liberdad, I believe I would like to take 500 copies. The rough word spoken of when I was at your office, sirs, I think is on page 48 in the last line, which for a holiday book, to be sure, should not be there, even in quotation. Please expunge and slip in some other word. I would dearly love to revise the little book throughout. Have tried to do so, but as often as I have tried, have fallen into the same faults of style. Too earnestly in the fight on decks, too gloriously free in the boat on the broad ocean. The best that may be done, I fear, will be to let it go as a sailor's book. Very respectfully, signed Joshua Slocum. The rough word which worried the captain is, in its quotes, busted in the jaw. Robert Brothers left it in. It did not offend their Victorian ear, but then they did not have as extreme a need for respectable appearance as Slocum. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast and, of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you're safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.